Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. And as such, we hope that this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the Church toward a more articulate and orthodox expression. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, who wonderfully created, and yet more wonderfully restored, the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you've been with us on our recent episodes, we've been covering the... Anglican Catechism, to be a Christian, especially moving through the Apostles' Creed. Um, So on our previous episode, we went through the Trinitarian Articles. So that would be, I believe in God, the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. So for today's episode, we're going to work through the remaining articles of the Creed. Um, So succinctly, that's, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. And then the catechism actually then goes into a section about the sacraments, which we will actually cover in the next episode. And then the next article of the creeds is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in the life everlasting. One way to think about these articles is that they explain what is for us the implication of the I believe statements that we've just made. So the first part of the creed goes through who God is. And so as we start with the Holy Catholic Church, uh, the communion of saints, um, we start talking into, uh, we start talking about what this reality of who God is brings us into. So we are brought into the Holy Catholic Church, into the communion of saints. And then what is the impact of this for us? Uh, The forgiveness of sins, our sins are forgiven. The resurrection of the body, as Christ's body was resurrected, so our bodies will also be resurrected, and the life everlasting. Uh, And that is the the culmination of all of this. So we're kind of moving in this episode from the nature of who God is into the impact that um, that that nature and and that the reality that we talked about in the last episode has for us as Christians. Um, And so this episode, I would say, is really getting into, so what does all of this that we've affirmed mean for us as Christians? Or as we, I think we said in our previous episode, the initial articles of the creed teach us about how God has revealed himself to be. And these are, in some ways, how we respond to that revelation, yeah. um, how we live it out and how we actually experience it on a day-to-day basis. I think there's one other thing that's really important and interesting for us to note, and this is particularly relevant, I would say, for Americans and Westerners. When we think about our relationship with Jesus, we tend to start at the individual level, what Jesus has done for me, and then we move up to the communal level or to the level of, and and because of what Jesus has done for me, this shows that I'm a part of of this. That's not actually the way the creed is structured. The creed starts with the church. It starts with uh, this communal reality, this reality of a community, of a people um, that are part of, of Christ. 
And then it kind of gets into what are the implications of that. And insofar as there's an individualistic implication of things like the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, that kind of flows in the creed from the church. Um, and so I think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at this, an interesting structural way that is a little bit different, I would say, than you know, the way if you, if you went to, uh, you grew up in an evangelical background or you went to an evangelical youth group like I did in high school, um, you're hearing much more about the individual. And it's not that the individual is not important, but there's a way in which this is structured and a flow that it has uh, that is a little bit, I would say, pre-modern. Well, perfect. With that, let's just jump straight in into the first question. Um, so if you have your catechism in front of you, we're going to be starting with question 89. What is the church? Very briefly, the answer to this question in the catechism is that the church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth. This question actually sets up a lot of other questions. It will build, when we talk about the community of saints, we're going to build on this question. The fact that it's the entire community of faithful Christians in both heaven and earth. And then the answer moves on. It says the church on earth gathers in local congregations to worship in word and sacrament. Actually, the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which actually just means assembly, the local assembly. So congregation church, it all points back to the same root, which is the gathered assembly of the people of God. And they gather together to worship in word and sacrament, to serve God according to the scriptures and to proclaim the gospel. Um, there's actually references at the bottom of each of the questions that we work through in the catechism. Um, and I, you know, it's referenced in a couple other places throughout the catechism, so I can't get too frustrated by this. But one thing that I would have liked to see quoted um, as a verse that kind of details how we should think about the church um, is probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible, which is Acts 2.42. Um, so if, you've, if you're familiar with the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts, you see initially um, Christ's command to the apostles that they go out and preach the gospel to all, na all nations, baptizing them and making disciples. And then we see the ascension, and then we encounter Pentecost. And Pentecost is the birth of the church. Um, you know, some people colloquially refer to it as the birthday of the church. And immediately after Acts, we have the conversion of 3,000, the first 3,000 initial converts. And then in Acts 2.42, it tells us what they did. So the first assembly of Christians, what do they do? It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so when we think about what is the church, and, and pretty much all that's contained in this answer, so I'm not pushing back against the answer, but maybe the way we envision it. When we think about what is the church, what is this assembly of Christians actually, it's those that fellowship, submit themselves to the apostles' teaching, or you could say apostolic teaching, those who break bread together, or very specifically the way the word breaking bread is used throughout the New Testament, those who share in the Last Supper of Christ, the Eucharist, um, and then also those who participate in the prayers of the church. Um, the form of the word prayer that's also used in Acts is very specifically the idea for a liturgical prayer, that which would have been done in the synagogue um, as they read through the Jewish Psalter. 
Um, so you have this this understanding of a a gathering of people for word, you know, apostolic teaching, um, and sacrament, breaking bread, to proclaim the gospel, going back to apostolic teaching, and they're also gathered for prayers, you know, to serve God according to the scriptures. You know, this is the way that God is always um, really required of those who serve him. I would say that <clears throat> this is one way in which I think the Anglican tradition is a little bit distinctive, not um, totally unique, because <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know that Anglican Anglicanism is 100% unique or, or tries to be in the sense of being different from everybody else. But one of the things that's a little bit different from Angli- of you know, for the Anglican tradition with respect to some other Protestant traditions is this verse of Acts 2.42 becomes central uh, and becomes sort of a central organizing principle for the way Anglicans do everything. Uh, so every office that you have in the Anglican church, every uh, aspect of Anglican worship and uh, the life of, of the church ties back into this idea of apostolic teaching, of uh, the breaking of bread, of the prayers. Um, it's very central to, I would say, the Anglican way of life, uh, that this is really the way that we're supposed to be the church. And so if we, as we start to get into some of the distinctives, and I think in this episode and the next, we're going to start talking about some things that are a little bit more distinctively Anglican. I think Acts 2.42 is a great touchstone verse for that because everything will touch back to one of these points. And as we move forward um, and we start thinking about this idea of Catholicity, what it means to be Catholic. First of all, we don't mean Roman Catholic. Um, I was, as a Lutheran growing up, I was a little bit confused uh, before I went to Lutheran catechism about why we kept saying that we were Catholics when, um, you know, we thought that we were Lutherans and so we didn't do that. And so, you know, the catechism instructor very nicely explained that there's a difference between Holy Catholic and Roman Catholic. What does Catholic mean? Catholic means whole. Catholicos is a Greek word that means the whole, uh, unified, right? And so what makes you a Catholic church? As the early Christians start wrestling with this issue, they also go back to Acts 2.42 and to the things that the church after Pentecost is devoting themselves to. So there's an early church father named Irenaeus, and uh, he's dealing with a bunch of heretics, people who don't believe in in stuff that is clear teaching of Christianity. He has some people who say, you know what, Uh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, they're not the same. So let's just get rid of that Old Testament God and... um, and we won't talk about him. And uh, these other, some of these other old New Testament books, they're a little too Jewish, so we'll get rid of them as well. Um, a bad idea who, unfortunately, whose time has come again. So you see some, even some people in uh, ostensibly evangelical circles who are advocating for this. So this is Marcionism, the uh, heresy of Marcion, right? And then you also have people who are saying, yeah, um, the physical resurrection is kind of gross. I mean, the idea that we're going to come back and you're going to have these physical bodies and all these things, yeah, that's not that's not really important. It, what's really important is the spiritual truth of this, not the physical resurrection and not uh, any of this physical stuff. And they're Gnostics, right? So they say matter is bad and spirit is good. Uh, and so they're denying, you have people denying the incarnation, you have people denying the Old Testament. And so Irenaeus is a church father in France who's like, how do we determine whether these people are Catholic or not? And he comes back to, a couple of ideas. Common liturgy, number one. Are they worshiping the same way that we're worshiping? A common rule of faith. Uh, so that's a, a sort of a, a way of life and also a common creed. Um, a common descent of, of teaching. So are, there, are they getting their teachings from the apostles? So the idea of the apostles' teaching is something that for Irenaeus is something that's a, a real living thing. He can say, look, I learned from Polycarp who learned from John. And so I know that the teachings that I have are apostolic. Can these people say the same? 
And then, of course, you have the idea of a common canon. So um, we're not just cutting off parts of scripture that we find inconvenient, but we need to hold these things in, cam- in, in common. Uh, so for the early church, scripture itself is part of what makes the church Catholic. Um, and Catholicity, in part, is also how we can tell that things are scripture. So these are mutually reinforcing. Um, and we see, again, all of these things, I would say, reflected also in Acts 2.42. So I think Acts, this that passage that Jay mentioned, is a really good uh, entry point into this question of, and this idea of a Catholic church. And that builds directly on question 95 in the Catechism, which is, why is the church called Catholic? Um, so it goes through a little bit of description about what AJ said and how we understand the word Catholic and why we as Anglicans can refer to ourselves as Catholics. It doesn't mean we're Romans, but it means that we hold the whole faith once for all delivered to the saints and that we maintain continuity with the apostolic church throughout time and space. There's another, uh, you know, AJ was mentioning um, St. Irenaeus. Another, I think he's a French saint as well, is St. Vincent Vincent. of Lorenz. Yes, he's French too. (laughs) And he has a great little quote that I wanted to read. Uh, St. Vincent says, Now in the Catholic Church itself, we take the greatest care to hold that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. That is truly and properly Catholic. You know, so as, as Vincent understands it, is that idea of everywhere, always, and by all. That's how we see um, really the understanding of what is the Catholic Church. It's that which holds the entire faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, and that little line, once for all delivered to the saints, you'll probably hear it a lot. It's a quote from um, Jude's epistle in the New Testament. Yeah. And if you remember back to our first bonus episode of Lancelot Andrews, that one, two, three, four, five um, that he's talking about, uh, the, the different aspects of what makes a Catholic church. It's very much drawing from Irenaeus and drawing from St. Vincent of uh, Lorenz. Absolutely. So um, really quickly, we'll, we were at uh, question number 95. So if you have your catechism, we're going to move back to question number 92, which is what are the marks or characteristics of the church? So we've been working through the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Um, so question 92 expounds on that, and it says, The Nicene Creed expands on the Apostles' Creed to list four characteristics of the church. It is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. AJ, would you like to talk, about, talk to us about how the church is one? So the oneness of the church comes in Christ, right? Um, when we talk about in the earliest time period, um, there, there's more of a sense of institutional unity. Although I don't want to exaggerate that too much because there, as I mentioned last time, um, a few minutes ago, there are, there are a number of heretical groups that are popping up almost instantly, right? So the oneness of the church is something that's been a struggle institutionally throughout the history of the church, but that has always been reflected in Christ. And we are all tied, uh, we are all members of Christ. Uh, and for this, I, I go to 1 Corinthians. So much of, of Paul's work in 1 Corinthians is about this because the Corinthian church in the first generation is having this, these divisions. Uh, and so in chapter 10, he talks about, you are now, now you are all members of the body of Christ, um, both individually, you are in, and you are all in the bodies of Christ and individually members of it. Right? So there's this unity in the church that comes in Christ. Um, and so this is a comfort to us, particularly as we look at, at such a divided church right now, that in one sense, in, the, in that Christological sense, the unity has already been achieved, 
right? So our unity in, in faith and our unity in the church comes uh, in Christ. Um, and I would say it's reflected in um, you know, following him, recognizing him as our head, uh, in, in the teaching. Uh, there's an element in which it's also recommended in, or it's also recognized in these other aspects of the church that Jay talked about uh, in terms of Acts 2.42. But ultimately, the unity of the church is rest, rests on Christ. Perfect. And so as we move, so that's one. And the, the only other thing I'd like to add is the quote from Ephesians 4, um, which says that we have one Lord, one Lord. faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Um, so our unity really does go back to this centrality of we have one God and we have one faith and we're all physically united to that by one baptism. AJ, why is the church called holy? I think the church is called holy, uh, and I love the way the catechism puts this, because because the Holy Spirit is with the church. Uh, The Holy Spirit builds the church. The Holy Spirit equips the church. And all the work of the Holy Spirit is for for that purpose, for the building up and equipping of the church uh, and for the proclamation of the truth. It testifies to Jesus, as he promised it would in John uh, chapter um, 14. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so that's that's where the holiness of the church comes from. Yeah, so we, as you know, Christ says, I will send my spirit. And it's his spirit that dwells within us as the church and continually sanctifies us as members of the church to make us holy and thereby making the church holy. Um, so it's this, you know, we have to understand the church as a communal body in which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We already kind of briefly talked on why the church is called Catholic, but I think, AJ, you wanted to expound a little bit on how we, uh, to quote the catechism, how we maintain our Catholicity through continuity with the apostolic church throughout time and space. Yeah, I think apostolic continuity is really important, and most of the debates about Catholicity, which is actually something that does get debated, is this a Catholic church or not a Catholic church, come back to that question of apostolic continuity and what it means. Uh, and so this is really an area, I think we'll get into this a little bit more um, in our next episode on the, on the sacraments, so I mostly want to tee up that discussion. Uh, for Anglicans, as it, was, as it is also true of uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, some Lutherans, um, and all of the the churches in the East, uh, various different um, uh, ancient historical elements. Um, Part of that continuity is institutional. In other words, uh, there's not just the idea that the apostolic teaching is carried forward. It's not just the the idea of uh, the scripture, but there's also a sense in which there's an institutional continuity from the apostles to their successors. And that is uh, institutional continuity. Uh, comes through a word that we read in the book of Titus chapter 1, um, and that is used throughout ancient uh, church history to describe people who are to be um, continuing the work of the apostles, in continuity with the apostles, and that is episkopos, uh, which is the root word of episcopal uh, or bishop. Okay, uh, and so this sometimes is translated as overseer in English, but the word episkopos is the Greek and the early church would have called themselves episkopoi. The, the leaders would have called themselves episkopoi, uh, or the plural of episkopos. So, you know, sometimes in English it's translated as a bishop or overseer, but that's episkopos. It's the same word that the early church would have used for that, and that they would have understood these people as in succession uh, to the apostles very, very early. 
So by the second generation, uh, there are these people who are being recognized in the church as having this kind of authority. We see it in Jerusalem. We see it in Antioch. We see it a little bit later in Rome. Uh, and so that's very important, I would say, for Anglicans, is that this, there's this continuity of apostolic, uh, of institutional apostolic continuity. Um, and that continuity sort of serves as, as an additional safeguard for apostolic teaching. So the purpose of an episcopos, a bishop, in continuity with the apostles, is to preserve, protect, and proclaim apostolic teaching. That's a bishop's primary job from the very early days of the church. Yes, they're a shepherd to the presbyters, uh, but they're standing in that continuity also with, of the apostles uh, and in the authority of the apostles. And so that's, that's an important institutional element of, I would say, Anglican ecclesiology. But it's not the only important element of Anglican ecclesiology and of that continuity, because you also have to have the other elements of continuity that Irenaeus talks about. Common liturgy, common prayers, common rule of life, uh, and that includes prominently common canon, right? So uh, the idea of continuity comes not just in this institutional um, continuity through the bishops, but also in continuity with scripture, in continuity with the teachings of the church that are drawn from scripture. Um, and so we don't, as Anglicans, see those two things as opposed to one another. We see them as mutually reinforcing. Um, and to be a bishop in continuity with the apostles is at once to have that continuity, but also to be in continuity with the teachings of Scripture and, the, and uh, in continuity with the teachings of the church. We'll get into, I think, some of those differences perhaps in, in for future podcasts because there are some nuances that differentiate our position from, for example, the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox, and there are certainly some differences from other Protestant churches. Jay, did you want to add anything on that? Really, all I would want to add is that when we talk about maintaining continuity with the apostolic church throughout time and space, is that this truly is an unbroken continuity. There is a, I would say, a misconception that at some point in the very early church, there was truly a break in the faith and that that faith was regained much later on. Some would say maybe at the Reformation, some would say during the Azusa Street Revival. Um, some would say with the first publication of a book by John Shelby Spong, but those people are mostly John Shelby Spong and his family. Absolutely. Uh, you know, maybe even uh, Joseph Smith. You know, there's, there's a lot of other you know, ideas of where the apostolic faith was regained. But in truth, because it's the idea that we maintain it both through time and space, is we truly have records of our the the maintaining of the apostolic church throughout time because it was preserved through that continuity so the first church historian is a guy named eusebius um and his church history is is interesting reading but in, there are parts of it that are really boring because it's just long lists of bishops um and he takes great pains to establish all of these apostolic successions um, and to show that each bishop is sent from this bishop is sent from this. It's like an apostolic genealogy, right? Um, and so, you know, sometimes there's this question of why are the genealogies in the Bible so important? Why are the genealogies in history so important? Because it's a, it's a question of pedigree. It's a question of exactly that type of unbroken continuity that Jay's talking about. Um, and by the way, we have a fairly 
um, unbroken continuity as well of this teaching. So there's this idea that people have that you know, there were secret teachings of, of Christianity that were suppressed and now they've come out later and they were suppressed maybe at the Council of Constantinople um, and there were a bunch of um, you know French monarchs descendants who were descendants of Jesus and Mary Magdalene that were keeping this alive. Thanks, Dan Brown. Um, and this, I mean, historically it's nonsense. Um, it's very popular because we have this radical skepticism now about the past. Uh, but actually, the, the records of Christian history and of that continuity are very strong. And so you know, a lot of these arguments about a hidden truth that's been suppressed that's come back are actually arguments that are made f by the heretics very early on, right? So this this idea of Gnosticism, that's, it's just the Gnostic heresy coming back over and over again, that there's this hidden truth um, and, you know, that there's this hidden spiritual truth that's only available to some. By the way, Jay, we may have to do a Gnosticism bonus episode at some point. <laughs> Gnosticism is, I'm, I would say, it's probably the number one heresy affecting the modern conservative Christian movement right yeah. now. Yeah, I would even just say modernity, period, but that's a whole different... But like yeah, I said, but I think it's, you know, when yeah. I think about, you know, conservative Christianity is the Christianity that pushes, especially is espousing that yeah. they are biblical Christianity. And yeah. I think this is, Gnosticism is the trap that they fall into continually. Yeah, and so there's this double irony, right? That Gnosticism is kind of the thing that they're the most against in modernity. They don't necessarily know the term, but all the things they don't like about the modern world that they're pushing it back against come from Gnosticism. And yet in responding to it, they can be, it's very easy to fall prey to a sense of Gnosticism of your own. If you don't have this historical continuity, um, and we're gonna get come back to this in a minute when we talk about the resurrection, but this is why the physical resurrection matters. Because this idea of history, of being rooted in history and tied to this continuity is really important um, for preserving the church against this tendency to um, spiritualize the history. And once you spiritualize the history, you're one step away from spiritualizing the physical person of Christ. And that's very dangerous. And so we will definitely do an episode on Gnosticism. And if you have any, uh, you the listener, have any great examples of modern example, modern Gnosticism within the church, uh, feel free to send them our way. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, you know, and we'll, we'll maybe find some examples and build off of them and relate them to the um, ancient actual Gnosticism and show where it's very easy to step off um, into that lane of traffic. All right, so next statement of the creeds, uh, we're moving on to question number 97. I believe in the communion of saints. I think this is actually a good transition. Um, one of the things about Gnosticism, and not to go back into that lane, but but to, to use that as a way to dive into this, um, it has this tendency to break people into people who are really in the know and people who are not in the know. You know, the the insiders and the outsiders. That's kind of one of the intrinsic appeals of Gnosticism in the ancient world, uh, and it's an intrinsic appeal of a lot of the religions around that around Christianity in its context. And so what you find with this idea of the communion of saints is, is essentially the church is pushing back against this and saying, no, actually, um, we are in community. We are um, one with with all of the members of the church, right? So who are the saints? The saints are those who are um, members of Christ. They are those who have, have walked with Christ, who are, are living with Christ. Um, now, there are some that we pick out as specific, specific exemplars of, of life and as models, um, but that doesn't mean that those who are not listed on the liturgical calendar are not saints. 
Um, and the, these saints are in communion with one another. They are united with Christ, and in that union with Christ, united with one another as well. Absolutely. And this, you know, AJ and I have probably mentioned a lot of times how maybe how similar we are to what maybe some of you listeners might perceive to be Roman Catholic theology. But the the idea of saints is actually some someplace where we would I would personally push back a little bit against um, Roman Catholic dogma and is how stringently the Romans use the word saint. Mm-hmm. Um, so saint, you know, just from a pure word study is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to righteous members of the of the tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, it's used over and over again um, throughout the epistles to refer to members of the church, believing Christians. And so, in my perception, we should use the word saint to refer to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and it also extends beyond that. Um, so the Catechism talks about what is the communion of saints. You know, the communion of saints is the unity and fellowship of all of those united in one body and one spirit through holy baptism, both those on earth and those in heaven. Yes. So the communion of saints goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, and it goes all the way forward to the apocalypse. Yep. That is the communion of saints. And we are blessed to stand at the time where we are now and my mother used to tell me this story that every time she would approach the altar rail to receive communion that word communion she would reflect on as she received the host that she was receiving with the entire communion of saints yeah it was very formative for me as well actually yeah and it's that might be a lutheran idea and the fact that you know aj has that idea my mom has it but just this idea that you know we are truly in communion with the saints past, present, and future. I would agree with everything Jay just said. I do want to also push back on Protestantism and the way it talks about saints as well. And I would say this, Catholics have a tendency to talk about saints in a way that excludes the living, and Protestants have a way of talking about saints that excludes the dead. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, so Protestants will emphasize what Jay said about we're all saints, right? But when they talk about it, they they really focus it on those who are alive today. And they don't want to draw from the tradition and the history of the saints that have gone before. Um, And that gets dangerous because then you start losing that rootedness in history. So I think the good thing that the Catholics have preserved is the idea that we do have something to learn from the saints that have gone before, and that there are special exemplars and, and models and people that we can look to uh, for inspiration. And I don't think it's inappropriate to um, ask the, the saints that have passed on to pray for us any more than it's inappropriate for us to ask the saints that are still alive to pray for us because we're all members of the same communion of saints. But the problem you know, that you sometimes get with, with Roman Catholicism is, again, that exclusivity, that idea of you know there's a sort of a special uh, insidery group of people that are, are sort of Christian superheroes and that they're saints and that they have superpowers. Um, you know, and, and that's being a little bit polemical, but you know, you, you do kind of get some of the, and I would say this is less official doctrine and more some pious belief in practice that there's, there's kind of this, um, yeah, idea that they're almost, uh, mediators and, and superheroes for lack of a better term. Yeah. And to be clear, what, what I would push back against in Roman teaching and dogma, um, and just for, I, I think I mentioned this in the bonus episode, you know, I came very close to becoming Roman Catholic. I was a member of uh, confirmation classes known as the RCIA program. And really what I would push back against is 
in Roman Catholicism to be referred to as a saint yeah. implies a knowledge that you are with Christ in heaven and no longer in purgatory. And where I would push back against that is how do we know right. that we are going to be in heaven with Christ after we die? Well, through our baptism. It's not through um, you know, counting the amount of miracles that have been performed in your name. Right. <laughs> but rather, were you baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Now, AJ touched on something that is, um, I would say, controversial. Uh, it's not controversial for AJ and I because I would say that we're on the same page here, but is the what's known as the intercession of the saints. Yeah. Um, there is a mistaken belief, both among, um, I would say, non-catechized Roman Catholics and non-Catholics who haven't researched the issue, that Catholics, specifically Romans, pray to the saints. Yeah. Uh, I just want to set the record straight. There is never a case in official church teaching where praying to the saints is ever advocated for. The practice, what is known as the intercession of the saints, is the practice of, in recognizing that we are in communion with the saints past and present. And in the same way that when I have an issue, I would ask AJ, who is my brother in Christ in the communion of saints, who also happens to inhabit the same time and place with me to pray for me. So I'm not relieving myself of my duty to pray to God. And I'm clearly not believing that AJ is any better as, as an intercessor than I am myself. Well, maybe I might believe that. So that's, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. Counter to you know, my point here. But is is surely because that's how we practice being the church right. in fellowship. Exactly. Is that we pray and intercede for others. I mean, that interceding for others is clearly commanded through Scripture. And so all the intercession is, is us also acknowledging that we are surrounded by by a cloud of witnesses and saints that have gone before us and asking them to do the same thing. Right. We're not excusing ourselves of our own obligation. We don't believe that they are any more effective as an intercessor than we ourselves are or you know, our friend next door might be, but rather we are acknowledging and practicing a belief in the fellowship and the communion of saints. Now, I will say this: this is controversial, especially right now within Anglican circles. Um, So we are recording this episode on November 12th of 2019. Um, So if you know your church calendar, All Saints Day was 11 days ago. And in 2019, there have been, I think we're at five or six articles right now, published in conversation on both the um, web journal, the North American Anglican, and also the web journal, Earth and Altar. where they talk very specifically about this issue of whether or not the saints can hear us and whether or not it is appropriate to ask for their intercession from an Anglican perspective. Um, You heard it first, what AJ and I believe on this issue, but we do recognize that there are other views on this. So maybe to end, um, before we dovetail into another 18 minutes and a half on the intercession of the saints, what we do know, and how I'd like to end, which is the last question on here from the Catechism, which is question 101, is 
how are the church on earth and the church in heaven joined? And we are joined through the worship, um, or sorry, all the worship of the church on earth is a participating in the eternal worship of the church in heaven. We know for a fact that the saints in heaven are worshiping. Amen. And as we worship God, we join in that worship. AJ, I don't know if it was the last um, last episode or the one previous that quoted the Tadam, where it talks about how the cherubim and the seraphim continually do cry, that the holy martyrs and the prophets and the apostles and the virgins all cry out and praise God. And as we join in that praise, we are practicing a belief and an understanding of the communion of saints. Yeah. I guess the last point that I would say is I think Jay, I agree with Jay 100% in terms of Roman Catholic teaching. I think that sometimes the Roman Catholics have not been great about policing the bounds of practice. <laughs> um, some of you may have seen some rather alarming commentary coming out about the most recent Amazon Synod and you know what looked like sort of an Incan idol um, that they claimed was, was sort of a statue of Mary but may not have been, right? So there's this kind of weird folk element that crops up in in a lot of Catholic practice that you know the church has tried to deal with. It hasn't necessarily always dealt with it super well. And this makes it much more complicated uh, to sort of make this argument. But I do think there's a balance point that's that's really good. And that I think is, is positive for us as we think about this idea of the communion of saints, of us united with our brothers and sisters in Christ in space, right? So when I take communion, I'm united to the persecuted Christian who is being thrown in jail for for his or her beliefs in China or Nigeria or being killed by a Muslim mob in Pakistan. And I'm also united with the, the martyrs, martyrs who suffered under Diocletian uh, and with those who broke bread with Jesus and learned at the feet of the apostles and those who will come at the end of time, uh, those who have yet to be members of the church. I think there's something really powerful and profound about that and I would I would want to see us retain that as Anglicans. Alright, moving on. So we're going to be at question 133. If you notice we skipped uh, 32 questions. That's because those are all about the sacraments. And so we come to the article I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now in our I think it was our first uh, real episodes we talked about what sin was. Um, really sin is any disordered desire. Um, anything that takes me and turns me away from the way that God has ordered me to be. Um, so it's not necessarily, I think actually AJ did a really good job in that first episode in talking about how sin is not merely this list of do's and don'ts, and if we break it, we've sinned. But it's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of turning ourselves away from the, from the manner in which God desires for us to live our lives and living out upon our own will and our own desires in a disordered way. Um, And so the article of the Crete, though, says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. AJ, do you want to expound on what it means by the forgiveness of sins? I think forgiveness is... um, It begins, at least... And I'm going to go a little bit Reformation here on us since I went a little bit... um, less Reformation on, <laughs> on the issue of saints, right? So the way the Reformation talks about this, I think is really helpful because it focuses on an aspect of, you know, sin is sort of a debt, uh, a debt that that is that we have incurred that is wiped away by God. And this, I think, is very biblical. It certainly comes out of a lot of the parables um, and the idea that uh, the debt is, is forgiven is sort of wiped away. Um, and so I think 
that how does that happen? That happens because of Christ, uh, because Christ pays the debt for us on the cross. There's nothing that we can do to overcome that, that debt of sin. There's nothing we can do to reorient ourselves toward Christ. Uh, and so the forgiveness of sins is powerful um, and, God, and Christ can forgive our sins in a way that in some sense, I think even goes beyond what we're capable of on our own. Um, and so when we pray, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, uh, we are actually praying, and, and we'll talk about this more in the Lord's Prayer, we're praying to God for God's help in both, both that he will help us to forgive, or that he will forgive our sins and also help us to forgive as he has forgiven us um, because we can't do it on our own. Right? We're not capable of it. Because what Christ does is he erases that debt. He erases that uh, that sin that's held against it. He takes it upon himself. And then he also empowers and enables us to reorient our lives toward him. So he is not only forgiving us our sins, um, but as a, a, an extension of that work, he's reconciling us to God in himself. Uh, and so that is the fullness of what is meant by the forgiveness of sins. It's not just that the debt goes away, but it's also that Christ helps, Christ reaches out to us and reorients us and sends his Holy Spirit to work in us, to reorient us toward him uh, so that we live a life in the way that he has designed us to live and that we live that, and I don't want to get too far ahead, uh, that we live that life eternally. And we do that um, because of what Christ is and and the fullness of what he's done for us on the cross and the resurrection. And the forgiveness of sins is in some sense the first fruit of Christ's work in our lives. Well, do you want to just go straight into living that out eternally? Yeah. So. Right. So the first, so forgiveness is the first fruit, right? So forgiveness, the reorientation of our life is the first fruit, this reconciliation. What's the next step? The next step is the resurrection of the body, right? So as Christ takes on the sin for us, the first, the initial step is our sins are forgiven uh, and we are reconciled to him in, in life. And then we're also reconciled to him in his death and resurrection because as he was raised physically, from the dead, so we also will be raised physically from the dead because of him, right? The resurrection of, it doesn't say, by the way, this is really important too, going back to the whole Gnosticism thing, which for some reason keeps coming up today. It doesn't say, I believe in the resurrection of the disembodied soul that floats around in a cloud in heaven forever. It says the resurrection of the body, right? There's a physical element to this. <clears throat> we'll be physically resurrected. We'll physically live uh, with Christ because he was physically resurrected. So, you know, we're not going to just discard and slough off this body for eternity. It's going to be resurrected and perfected. That's amazing. Uh, that's an amazing fact, an amazing aspect of this. Um, and it's because of what he has done. And so that's the, the culmination of the forgiveness of sins comes in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This isn't a temporary, it's not like we get resurrected and then we die, but we're resurrected to eternal life. And not just that, but to eternal life in Christ. Uh, participating, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode as well, participating in that divine relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We participate through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and are drawn cr closer to the Father, as some of the early church fathers talk about. Um, we are drawn closer to the Father uh, through that process, and so we participate in that relationship. Absolutely. I've, um, I've talked on a lot of other episodes about how I used to I used to not have any concept of this idea of the resurrection of the body. It was maybe a vague vague term, a vague principle that maybe I stated in the creed on a weekly basis and I did not 
remotely understand. Um, and my perception of this was totally changed by N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. But what he really shows is that when we look at Christ, we see his death on the cross. And in his death on the cross, we see truly what A.J. was mentioning, that atoning work to conquer our sins. And through that, we receive forgiveness of sins. But it can't just stop at the cross. Mm. You know, death has to be defeated. And so what do we see? We see the cross, and then we see three days. Or really, we see the Sabbath. God rests. So on that seventh day, Saturday, after being put to death on Friday, God is resting. But in his rest, what is he doing? What we see in 1 Peter 3, he is preaching salvation to those who have gone before. And then we have the eighth day. And on the eighth day, we have the resurrection of the body. We have the new life, the yeah. new creation, the beginning of the new humanity, the new Adam. And we see victory, victory over death victory over sin and it's through this resurrected body where mankind with its first fruits being Christ mankind being redeemed to be what it was created to be in the first place we talked about how sin is being disordered the resurrection is true reordering we are having our bodies reordered to the purposes in which they were created to be and so when we look to the end of time, when we look to the end of our life, we need to look with hope. Hope that the things that make life worth living, whether it's taste, you know, enjoying a good meal, whether it's smell, whether it's enjoying a beautiful sunny day, God created those things good for our physical senses to appreciate and enjoy and love. And it's that same physical body with those same physical senses that will be raised and redeemed to go live the life everlasting in the presence of God as we accept his forgiveness of our sins. I think that one of the things that Jay hit on, I want to talk about this briefly and maybe we can, we can talk about it more. I think we were talking about doing a bonus episode on the liturgical calendar, and I think this really ties into it. There's a sacred element to time. The first actual thing that, that I think we're given in Genesis 1 is the idea of the week. And the week is structured. It's laid out uh, in Genesis 1 in a liturgical sense. Uh, it's, there's, there's a liturgical rhythm to Genesis 1. And it's interesting. It's in, there's evening, there's morning, the first day, and so forth. And then God said, right? So there's a liturgical structure to Genesis 1. But if you map this onto those three days that, that Jay is talking about, humanity is, is created on day six um, in, in God's image. And then on Friday, which is day six, um, God's image is broken on the cross because of the breaking of the image on the fall. Christ dies on the same day that God breathes life into man, Christ breathes his last. And then on the day that God rests, Christ rests. But then if you look at the week as something that, that circles around, on the first day, when, when God says, let there be light, the light of the world comes back into the world through the resurrection, right? So there is this sense in which the resurrection is also a recreation. It is, and, and that is also in scripture. Paul says, in Christ, you were a new creation. A new creation isn't just a metaphor in this sense. 
um, it's showing that you know in the way that time reflects sacred reality, God's rest has ended, and Christ has arisen. Uh, and so I think that to me, I was I was just struck by that. Um, really a couple of months ago, uh, that there's a sacred dimension of time that's multi-layered. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the eighth day and it's also the first day. There's a, a kind of returning again uh, to the light of the world, coming into the world uh, and creation being made new and being recreated anew. I would just like to close with this quote, the very last quote in this section of the Catechism. So it's the end of question 148. In the midst of life's difficulty and suffering, and in the face of hostility and persecution for my faith, I am sustained by the hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and the knowledge of our triune God's eternal love for me. Amen. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.